It was Saturday, April 1, 1995, and as details of News Limited's covert raid on rugby league trickled in, across Sydney, ARL officials were trying to make sense of the chaos. One of the rumours concerned reigning premiers Canberra, who were in Townsville on Friday night to play the North Queensland Cowboys. Eager to get to the bottom of the matter, Phil Gould called Ricky Stewart, desperately hoping the intel passed on to him by James Packer was incorrect. I can't tell you a lie, mate. I've signed with Super League, was Stewart's blunt reply. This was a problem. Stewart was the current Australian halfback and widely considered the best player in the game. As Stewart explained his reasons to his origin coach, however, Gould masked his disappointment and turned his attention to the league's next move. His reply was equally to the point. What made you think you couldn't get that sort of money anywhere you went? This is Get Sticky, the 10th chapter in the Rugby League Digest in-depth investigation of the Super League War. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams here with Andrew Paskin. How are you, Andy? Hello, Michael. I'm well. This is a personal chapter for you. We're talking about the Canberra Raiders at long last. Is it going to be the, including the uh, the feud between me and Sticky that was one way from 94 <laughs> till about 2010? That gets its own four-part chapter <laughs> later in our series, so let's keep it to the, the basic facts in this episode. Uh, I just wanted to start with the fact that we're 10 chapters in and we've barely discussed Canberra at all. And even though I knew we had this chapter coming, at times I've been panicking going like, are we going to talk about Canberra? Such a pivotal club in the whole thing. So we've talked about the importance of Brisbane and Canterbury to Super League getting off the ground. Canberra were obviously the third and equally important club involved at the time. It's funny, like a game with the on-field success being so important in rugby league, like if they were as good as Balmain on the field... Do you think they would have cared about Canberra as much? <laughs> That's one of the things I wanted to ask you. So just say a Super League was getting off the ground in 2020. We're reducing the number of teams to 12, say. We're getting a Perth team, maybe a second Brisbane team or second New Zealand team, maybe Adelaide. Are Canberra a sure thing to be one of those 12 teams? For me, it's a pretty good region, decent-sized city, uh, that type of thing, but they don't turn up that well. So again, it's, it's all about on-field success where at the moment if it was next year you'd say yet they're getting great crowds they're relevant on the field camera have got to be there but maybe five ten years ago yeah you'd think they were kind of expendable they've got the one city club thing happening which is you know very beneficial but you know compared to newcastle you wouldn't call them a powerhouse would you in no crowds and corporate interest yeah but obviously in in 1994 they were a powerhouse in any way you wanted to break it down sorry excluding the milk industry obviously (laughs) very interested and so they were a critical signing for super league but as i've been researching this chapter it really struck me not for the first time how often in this saga you see history being shaped by some long-held personal grievance. (laughs) Uh, Like all the talk of vision, even all the talk of financial gain and the rest of it, so often it comes down to someone being slighted sometime in in the deep past, holding onto it and you know, a moment comes to settle scores. Well, I mean, he's like, I'm a guy who was seduced by the vision in inverted commas, right? As a teenager, I was a Canberra fan, so I was on board. Reading the preparation that you provided for this episode... I felt sick at how petty it was. So let's just dive into that pettiness. So we start this story in the early 90s where Canberra are 
carving up on the field, but about to run into some major problems off the field. And that started with some astounding financial mismanagement. They entered the decade $6 million in the red, uh, thanks largely to some questionable real estate acquisitions. (laughs) Again with the real estate investment. Not for the first or last time. So uh, despite already having Queanbeyan Leagues Club Canberra Leagues Club, they thought they'd open a Canberra Juniors Leagues Club, also looking at some hotel investments around the ACT region. How many Las Vegas casino proprietors do you hear going broke all the time? <laughs> How do they always go broke in the free money driven in there in truckloads and dumped in machines? And the problems really started to spin out when uh, a Queanbeyan nightclub they decided to open. <laughs> what, is this the mafia or is it a rugby league club? So originally budgeted at $600,000, blew out to over $2 million for a club that was open two nights a week. What next? Loan sharking on the side? (laughs) So I I do feel sorry for them in in this respect. They're trying to do the right thing and invest in one of the holy trinity of investments. (laughs) You got bricks and mortar, municipal bonds, and Queen Bee and Nightlife. Night spots, (laughs) NIT. But I mean, through this whole series, we've seen every club trying to invest in everything. They cannot get their core operations under control, and they want to be investing in every industry under the sun. And it goes back to the thing about on-field success, where the Canberra board, who were self-described as the super board, because of their on-field success, they thought that translated into them being unimpeachable marketing geniuses. So they ran into a lot of financial trouble. We saw all the way back in our Brisbane Origin story episode, Les McIntyre failing to sign Wayne Bennett's contract. It seemed that was a a regular occurrence with contracts not being registered with the league. You had one player being able to renegotiate his contract three times in the space of eight months because it wasn't being registered. (laughs) You had last-minute plane trips to Sydney on June 30, the deadline for registering contracts. (laughs) We talk in the Bullfrog episode about success being built into the woodwork. This is the exact opposite of that. I mean, it's unforgivable, really, to like not sign contracts and register contracts. What do you gain from it? I don't know. <laughs> It'd be interesting if anyone's involved in it can, like, can shed some light on the... I hope it was just like they were having a good time with like you know buffet meals at the club and beers and stuff and forgot. But when it's happening every year... <laughs> so as the, the finances were heading downwards, they actually had to ask the league to step in and help them out. This led to the Reserve Bank's Bernie Fraser eventually stepping in to try to sort out the situation, led to some scrutiny uh, from ASIC into the state of their financial affairs. A lot of this came from a seemingly shady organisation called Queanbeyan United Football Club. So this was a club that had been put together by the McIntyres for some... I don't know the nature of what the gain was for them, but it basically gave them seats on the Queanbeyan Leagues Club board, which then gave them seats on the football club board. And it was this Game of Thrones kind of proxy operation that, again, I don't know the exact nature of, but we had a whistleblower in former Raiders marketing manager, Des Byrne, who described it as a funny organization. Do you know who's not well-received in rugby league? Whistleblowers. (laughs) (laughs) So Des Byrne went into some detail about the nature of Canberra's financial operations and a lot of it seemed to come down to tax schemes ways of redistributing money here and there to I guess get a a financial advantage I'll just read this in terms of how they operated their salary cap for instance so Des Byrne was saying that the club got around the cap 
because they set up a lot of schemes for player payments, which were set up for tax purposes rather than to save the club money. The club still paid the dough. I had a couple of stuff that never rolled up, even though they were on the wages. That was organized for tax purposes. By the time I eventually left in February, there were a lot of rotten apples around. Are we talking no-show jobs here? Well, that's contested. So it's leading into the next thing we're going to talk about, that all this scrutiny led to their extensive salary cap rorting being uncovered. So over $600,000 over the cap for 1991. Back then, that was substantial. doesn't feel like a lot now. No. But so, yeah, there was a lot of scrutiny into whether those jobs were fair dinkum or Mickey Mouse. (laughs) So one insider, Raider Source, defended the payment saying, for Mal Meninga and Gary Belcher, those figures must include what they receive in their club marketing jobs. They work the hours and do a good job. Yeah, right. Which, to be fair, in their defense, I think in 1991, Mal in a club polo is doing just as good a job in marketing as what most clubs were doing at the time. Mal in a club polo would do better than any marketing department. You're like, wow, look at him. He's big. You know? <laughs> but I mean, the marketing officer has been long derided on this podcast and will continue to be derided. Uh, on the other side of the equation, David Barnhill, then a young, promising up-and-coming second rower, was on $95,000, $30,000 of which was for a job which Roy Masters in the Herald described as having relaxed hours. <laughs> so as I said, this scrutiny exposed the salary cap rort. Uh, in addition to what we've just talked about, there were things such as superannuation payments to players not coming up in the budget, landscaping being done at players' homes as part of their payment. <laughs> Uh, and the standard being paid for jobs they never attended. I, I really enjoy the quaintness of some of the salary cap extras you f- hear about in footy. Yeah. <laughs> like we had the boats with the Melbourne Storm. Yeah, yeah, the marquees. Yeah, but like, you know, I wouldn't want a water feature for the backyard. You know, like, we'll chuck that in. You know? <laughs> so you already had the club in financial trouble. The league came down hard on them for the salary well hard with exclamation points they came down hard for the time i think they were very lucky to not have titles stripped well i remember when it happened i was i wasn't too much into the you know behind the scenes machiavellian intrigues in that era of like year six so i was just like oh no this is not good we lose some players and then the talk that was in the comms and i really panicked yeah and thank god it didn't happen but it made me thinking as we were prepping for this app how much i think the melbourne storm Premierships being taken away was a mistake. At the time, I, I fully supported it as a deterrent, but it just taints the whole era. Because these Canberra teams, you look back on them and you love it. I, I thought the same thing when I was thinking about that Canberra team, like how, you're right, it would be a really empty feeling and it would lose a lot of important history. It's done that to Melbourne. It's done that to Melbourne, but Melbourne... It's the same thing. Everyone was doing it. You know, like Zach was the same thing in different eras, but now this one era with Inglis and Smith and Cronk is now tainted and their legacies are tainted and it just sucks. But they got to rebuild that legacy. Like, I think either give them the comps but gut that team, you know, completely clear out the administration and... That's what, I mean, if I had my choice now, looking back, that's what would have happened because Canberra gutted their team after 91. Hang on. That's our next point. So, But continue your point here. Well, they gutted a couple of players. (laughs) (laughs) All right. All right, maybe they didn't get it as much as it should have, but I think get rid of the administrators, fully bar them, make sure they don't do it again as a deterrent. Mm. But like just tainting the legacy of these super teams in the long term, no good. I don't know. I, di- I disagree. I- if we said now uh, 89 and 90 are an asterisk, people would be shattered. 
Well, that's the thing. 89 is fine, and that's the important one. Well, they're both important. Yeah, but, I mean, 89 in particular. If they won 89, which there wasn't a cap in place, so that's legit. Yeah, but if they said, like, oh, Kevin Walters, he's got six comps, but one's an asterisk, you'd be like, oh. Yeah. Maybe let's put this to the listeners and, and instead of us arguing when we've got so much to talk about. Yeah, sorry. I was I, just, I, I mean, no, no, no. It's, it's, I was just preparing. I was just thinking how sad it is. Like, GI's legacy's tainted and it's like, you know, you don't want that. Yeah. Just blokes taking extra money who wouldn't say yes to it. And I do understand that argument when it's not the player's fault for the most part, although I question the naivety. Even then, it's like, everyone's doing it, mate. Come on, you know. Yeah. And your manager's in your ear going, I can get an extra five grand out of this if you say yes. But so that's the situation the Raiders were in. They didn't have their comps taken away, but they copped a big fine and had their salary cap reduced for 1992 when they were already in some financial issues. So in stepped in, save the Raiders, which was a, a, a crowdsourced campaign backed by some heavy hitters to you know get the club back in the black and keep the squad together. So they actually collected 30 grand in buckets at one Raiders game, which that was part of the, the kitty they'd put together that they thought that they could use to pay players. <laughs> Let me ask you this. Do you think the Green Bay Packers had buckets going around to like pay Brett Favre in the, in the same era or...? But the gall of them to think that that was going to be considered acceptable to the league. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, you cheated and here's your penalty. But since you've raised it from the vulnerable fans, we'll allow you to continue. <laughs> but on that, the players they lost. So Fred Daly, the politician we spoke about in, when we were talking about Newtown, was front and centre in, in that Save the Raiders movement. And this quote of his sums up a lot of the Raiders fans' feeling. We had to let a lot of players go. Glenn Lazarus. And Sydney teams was there's always that we we lost Glenn Lazarus, mate. The list goes on. I think they lost Gary Coyne and Brent Be- Todd, Bellamy. David Barnhill. So like they lost you know some players, but they still did all right. You know, ten internationals as we, we said <laughs> when we were talking about them. A couple of those were Fiji. Yeah, <laughs> but regardless of where you stand on what the punishment should have been or what should have happened, this scandal set in place a, a long-standing tension with the league. And again, it comes down to nepotism in some respects with Les McIntyre's son, John, who was running at the club, forced to leave his post. The family dynasty aspect of rugby league, I mean, I always knew it was there, but I didn't realise the extent until this... Series. I know, I know. Everybody's just trying to hold on to power vicariously through their offspring. Yeah, <laughs> and that tension's been spoken about uh, from both sides. So in Ken Arthurson's book, he said... There's no doubt whatsoever that Canberra rorted the system. Yet ever since, there's been a seething resentment aimed at Phillip Street over the matter. What can they be resentful about? You got caught cheating. Well, well, let's let's hear what Paul Morgan has to say about it. So he said, I was surprised at the depth of angst towards the ARL from someone like Les McIntyre, who has never forgiven Ken Arthurson for what happened over the salary cap. The newer teams were a lot more commercial in their outlook and forward thinking. <laughs> You don't get busted for an armed robbery and go, well, some other guys do armed robberies. Why am I going to jail? You're right, though. I do not understand the resentment and anger. Any It goes to any salary cap scandal. There'll be people in the administration, fans, just so angry at the league for acting against them, cheating the system. <laughs> yeah. But I don't think Ken Arthurson helped his case in some respects. So this was at the height of the Super League war, but Ken Arthurson said that 
the Raiders should get down on their knees every time someone from the ARL walks past in relation to everything that happened with their financial troubles. Well, I've got to agree with that. If they bail you out and then you brought them and then then you're angry at them. <laughs> it, it's correct in substance, but it's a red rag to a ball at that point. <laughs> but that, but that's, the, that's the other thing. It would be one thing, you know, Paul Morgan talks about teams being commercial and forward-looking. That's fine if you're the Broncos and you're making truckloads of money. But when you're $6 million in debt asking the league for assistance... It's the equivalent of like the American auto industry getting done for tax evasion and going, yeah, the government's had to get us. It's like, yeah. well, they bailed you out four years ago, but and you're also doing illegal activity. But- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so you, you saw in the years that followed just extreme pettiness, similar to what we heard from the Broncos side. So that incident we spoke about with Mark Carroll not being cited for a tackle against David Ferner... Well, that microcosm there goes to show exactly why the game is where it is still. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But Kevin Neal using that moment to say that the ARL aren't fit to run the game. You know, like one, <laughs> one judiciary <laughs> subjective opinion. But this is the, the myopic nature of the rugby league person. Can't look further than their own nose. And that's why we're in this mess. No, exactly. And that we saw at the Broncos and the same thing happened here. It starts at the top. And it filters down to every level of the organization. So you had that victim mentality even expressed by the players. So this was a Bradley Clyde quote. I was furious with what happened at Canberra in 1991. The situation should never have arisen in which the club could have so mismanaged its finances. What really fueled our bitterness was that we didn't know and still don't what sacrifices, if any, the blokes who landed us in this mess made. Why then is that the ARL's problem when that's yeah, Canberra yeah. administration? Absolutely, I do, I do feel for the players because yeah. like that was a very unsophisticated time. Exactly, they're not brain surgeons to begin with, and I don't know why these uh, administrators don't get harsher punishments mm. for these things. Yeah, Waldron got his punishment, but that was the other guys skated. Yeah. It seemed. But uh, Ricky Stewart, even more bitter. As soon as we won the nineteen eighty nine grand final, the next year there was a salary cap. They tried to fix us well and good. When we won in 1990, they found a way to split us up. <laughs> Other clubs were over the salary cap, Western Parramatta, but you didn't see anything of that. So uh, just for the record, Parramatta were over the cap by $39,000, West by $27,000. Riding high on the hog, 15th and 16th on the table. <laughs> but perhaps the most bitter at all was Tim Sheens. And this is what he had to say about the salary cap scandal. We lost 35 players. In 1993, we were back in the semis and in 94, we won it. We did a lot of hard work with our hands tied behind our backs. I don't care what anyone says. We were kept very strictly under tow by the league because of the salary cap. And every move we made was scrutinized. Every move. <laughs> I but, do agree with him on one point, though. That he, did, he did rebuild amazingly well. Ruben Wiki, Nandruku, Nagus, etc. He he did well, David but Wesley, Harrington. He started with a pretty good core. Yeah, <laughs> but the, yeah, we we spoke about it in our Canberra episode. He got the exact right pieces he needed to make them that champion team again. Mm. But you could see in the way he talks, there's a long-standing resentment of the league from Tim Sheens, and he might have been the easiest sell of all to Super League. In addition to the salary cap, Tim Sheens was bitter about losing the Origin job after 1991 his first and only year in the job. He was upset that coaches like Jack Gibson and John Peard, who'd also bombed out, had been given a second opportunity. Then he was upset that he wasn't getting the team he wanted because, as he puts it, 
There are a number of selections I wanted and was told by the head selector at the time, Don Ferner, that I couldn't have. The reason, he explained, was that Ken Arthurson comes down the corridor, as any boss does when he gets to work, sticks his head in and says, what's happening? What are you doing with this? What are you doing with that? We're thinking about this. Oh no, you can't do that. But naive Tim really thought as coach you'd get some input, which of course Fulton's got. But of course Fulton is Ken's adopted son, right? We all know that. I mean, that's a different situation. I wonder what the selections were then. I'd like to know this. The ones that he weren't, wasn't allowed. Yeah, yeah. That bitterness manifested into Tim Sheen's abusing Ken Arthurson in the sheds <laughs> uh, during one Origin game, which, as he puts it, I knew as he stormed out of the shed that was the end of me. And it's like, yeah, it pro- probably would have been. <laughs> as a guy from Newcastle where the advice in any situation is, mate, tell him to get fucked. Right. <laughs> I, I can relate to what he's done there, but uh, I can also relate to Arco not liking it. But interestingly enough, you can see with Sheen's, some of his most vitriolic comments are about his one when he was a, a player and then later took on the job as coach at Penrith, Charlie Gibson, who in the 70s was part of the cartel when he was running Souths. 1980, he took the job at Penrith. And Sheen's is very bitter about the way he ran the club. Uh, and, and this goes back to him eventually leaving Penrith as a player. I'll just read this from Roy Masters' Inside Out. Johnny Peard wanted me to play another year, but Charlie wasn't a fan. It was the old not tough enough, not ugly enough, been around too long. Maybe I was all of those things, but the coach was keen for me to play and that's all that worried me. I walked into Charlie's office and as I got in the door, he said, don't bother sitting down, there's no money. That's how he handled it. So I turned around and walked straight out. My brother-in-law, Peter Kelly, was told by Charlie as he was taking his shorts off at training, don't bother taking your shorts off, you're cut. I think it's interesting that his disillusionment with the league goes all the way back to the 70s when he was a player at one of those have-nots, seeing the clubs that were the in-club, the way they were able to get their own way. I can understand that. That's got to permeate your soul when you're you know, hiding to nothing all those years. Yeah, exactly. And then having one of those cartel members come in, installed as boss of his club, and almost immediately not getting along with him. And I think this quote really sums up the situation with Sheen's. This is also from Inside Out. You could probably extend my opposition right back to the days when I believe they made it difficult for Penrith when I was a player. My experience with the administration was never a pleasant one, even if I was just a player with a club that was getting its bum kicked. There was the $2,000 ceiling payment system. When it didn't suit Ken Arthurson, Peter Moore, they said, we'll change it. The import rules and things like that, it was based around the Sydney clubs. There was a lot of heavy politics, and in my opinion, it's still based around the clubs in the inner city. That's the power base. The old guard looked after each other. There was even an unofficial non-poaching agreement between three or four of the very strong Sydney clubs. They wouldn't touch each other's players, but they poached other clubs. There were a lot of representative jerseys being won through the old, come and play with us, we've got a representative jersey in the draw. That's got to really put your nose out of joint. And think about that in relation to 1994, 1995. Mm. Suddenly this opportunity comes along, not only to potentially rid the game of these types of issues, change the power base so it's away from Sydney, but directly affecting some of the blokes that you've been in opposition to all these years. Yeah, yeah. you got to say for Sheens it was yeah, a, a very easy... Eldorado. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like the fact that he considers Penrith out of Sydney. That's quaint. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it was back then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It comes back to the whole Arco and Moore, they read what yeah. they said. Yeah. And so this is the environment we're in in 1994 as Super League is taking shape. You've got bitterness towards the league coming from every level of Canberra. 
making them easy targets on top of their on-field success, the fact they were a one, one-team town, all the rest of it. Then on top of this, in 1994, you had Nick Politis making a splash with East. You had Gus coming in in 1995. Suddenly, East were a player in the transfer market like they hadn't been in a very long time. Mm. Uh, so the war went up another gear when they tried to get Bradley Clyde and Ricky Stewart. Back to the ARL though, does this not explain away some of their like, how do they not know this was a threat when their whole day is consumed by everybody hating them? So it's yeah. like the threat didn't seem that much more different than usual. Yeah. That's, just, just more hate. That's a good point. And as we talked about with Peter Moore, you had him constantly at odds with John Quayle, like from the moment Quayle came into power. Mm. So you could see that John Quayle might just think of all these other threats as just another one of those. Yeah. And, <laughs> But so in the eyes of the Raiders, East effectively started Super League. Obviously, that's not true of, of the war as a whole. But at a dinner at Penshurst RSL Club, which was actually Kevin Neal's old junior club, uh, he told the crowd there that East had started the Super League war by going after players like Clyde and Stewart. <laughs> you mean they tried to buy good players for their club? <laughs> How dare they? So it's clear from this that this period is the beginning of the East that we know, or the Sydney City that we know today, that irrespective of Super League, they were making a concerted effort at, in the short term, returning to relevance, and in the long term, becoming the club of power, influence, and success. Super League helped them with that, but I don't think massively. I think they probably would have got Freddie anyway, and they were setting up to raid top talent across the game. Mm. But it's it's one of those sliding doors moments where you think about them now compared to 1995. They were a joke in the early yeah, 90s. Yeah. And so I, I wonder what, they're not being a Super League, how that would have changed things. Yeah. I think it would have been fine for them. Yeah. Yeah. As I said, I, I really think they were setting up to be that club anyway. But so in this environment with the East launching these big player aids, there was already a few rumours going about that the salary cap was going to be scrapped for 1996 and beyond. This led to some suspicions from the likes of Brisbane and Canberra that there'd been some kind of tip-off, that some clubs were being informed that there wasn't going to be a cap and were <laughs> acting a a accordingly. That's a conspiracy I can believe, actually. I actually don't believe it. I think it was all above board, but there's no doubt that that sort of thing had happened in the past. Yeah. It was built into their corporate yeah, structure. it's possible it could have happened. So there's no wonder that that level of paranoia could fester. It, it goes back again to Caesar's wife. Yeah. You have to be above suspicion. And the league, because of their history, because of their structure, were very much not above suspicion. Mm. And so it was Stuart's contract that inadvertently let Gus know about what was happening with Super League. So Stuart's contract had a clause in it about you know, being renegotiated if a salary cap was scrapped or if something like a Super League came along. And so according to Gus, Stewart came to him after Gus had been appointed coach for 1995, saying that he wanted to come to East and play under Gus and his contract at Canberra would be null and void because there was going to be a Super League so he'd be able to renegotiate. And at that point, Gould didn't know what was going on behind the scenes. That's incredible, isn't it? Someone as highly placed as him hadn't heard of it. And again, this is all up for conjecture. Ricky Stewart, for his part, rejects the idea that he wanted out of Canberra, and in his version, it was the Roosters chasing him. I would definitely trust Sticky over Gus's recollection, but it's definitely a Rashomon style. Yeah, and and <laughs> to, to me, 
I think it's likely that Stewart was prepared to go to East in 1995, regardless of who contacted who first. I think there's enough there that that was probably on the cards. I wonder if that that would have affected his career. He would have played more tests. If he'd have gone in 1995, and that's all that changes, Super League still happens, but he's on the ARL side, I think that removes that little... When we were talking about his Hall of Fame case, for example, Mm. clear, obvious Hall of Famer, but you're judging a career effectively 1989 to 1994. Yeah. I I think that would have given him those two or three more years where he was left out of that 100 greatest players for the centenary thing, only became a Hall of Famer last year. I think if he was with the A-roll playing for Ace, he's probably straight into that 100 players. Yeah, that's what I think too. Should have been there anyway in my view. Yeah, I I think definitely. And Stewart and Gould were close then. In in Stewart's account, this is the point that they fell out for the first time because of what Stewart saw as Gould lying about what had happened. And again, I think parts of Gould's account are quite implausible. Effectively, when he was approached by Stewart and Clyde's agents and both times was like, well, they're both under contract, you know, so (laughs) I, I don't really buy that. But I also think Stewart, when he's talking about it so vehemently in 1995-1996, it's almost like when there's a person you used to like and you're trying to rationalise all those feelings and say, oh, I mean, I never really liked him, yeah, you, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. But you're right, it's a total rational one. <laughs> like everything in this story. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so whoever approached to, this was what was happening. Bradley Clyde and Ricky Stewart were both, both had massive offers for, to go to Easts. So in the case of Clyde, his manager, George Mimas, received the offer to East, took it back to Canberra, who had offered $300,000 a season and said they weren't even in the ballpark. So at that point, $300,000 would have made him the most highly paid player in the game. And at this point, Les McIntyre and Kevin Neal decided they need some help. So they went to Ken Cowley and said what was happening. Basically, East were trying to get their players. What could they do about it? And according to Neal, he was told by Ken Kelly, don't worry about it, we'll buy them for you. So, of course, Super League developments were well underway by this point and Canberra were actively involved. But according to some, it was this issue in particular that forced Super League's hand with that April Fool's Day raid. The timing works out. I can't say for sure that this was the spark that lit the fire, but it was certainly the last domino falling into place in in terms of News Limited's raid. Right. And so at the same time, they had Tim Sheens in the bag. Canberra administration were well behind it. April Fool's Day comes along and it's time to get the Raiders. So that signing took place on the Friday night, Friday, March 31, with the Raiders up in Townsville for their game against the Cowboys. This sequence of events just shows how like thrown together it was. Yeah. No one really knows what's going on. The players don't really know. So they knew something was up, so... Uh, Steve Walters, for example, wasn't playing in that game, but he made the trip up anyway. So in his words, he hadn't gone up specifically because of Super League. He said, I went to have a few beers and some fun at the casino, which is pretty good compared to Canberra at that time of year. (laughs) But someone mentioned there was something a bit more serious than blackjack happening. (laughs) Code for, I knew I was going up to sign with Super League. (laughs) And Bradley Clyde as well said he didn't know exactly what was happening but he knew there was something afoot that there was going to be something relating to super league in townsville it's just so cloak and dagger isn't it and interestingly enough kevin hill and david smith actually informed george mamus 
and we'd spoken about them largely freezing play managers out, but Mimas they kept involved from the start. He was Bradley Clyde's manager, and so he actually played a role in the negotiations, unlike any other manager. Why does not? I think maybe he was, uh, and I'm just guessing. It just makes sense that he might have been clean in their eyes because he didn't have deep links with ARL administration. Mm. We also in the Canberra signing, we also get an an idea of the the issue of duress or how easy it was for players to get out of Super League contracts because of the manner in which they were signed. So Laurie Daly, for instance, said. The offer they made was impossible to ignore. They suggested I sit by myself for half an hour and weigh up the pros and cons of the deal. They took me to another room where I spent one of the longest 30 minutes of my life. The only thought that kept going through my mind at that time was that I would be set for life. I signed on the dotted line there and then. So so don't go get legal advice. Sit by yourself <laughs> with your uh, footballer brain and you go through the contract. Yeah, and then once you're signed up, now you're an expert in it. So when Jason Croker comes along, for example... Laurie Daly said, Jason Croker approached me to act as his manager because he didn't have a clue what to ask for. <laughs> I asked him what he'd be happy with. He told me, and in we went. There was nothing to it. He spoke, they agreed, he signed. <laughs> and so for the players who did sign, there, there was no issue with duress. They were all stoked. Uh, I think a great night was had by all in the casino afterwards. Steve Walters made sure to cash his check the very next morning <laughs> in, in case something happened with it. <laughs> Do we have any information on who was up and down? <laughs> Haven't heard. But the the one holdout was David Ferner, who was in a very tricky position given his dad was the chairman of selectors at the ARL. Yeah, geez. Tough on him. And he's right at the start of his upswing. Yeah, so he had a lot to weigh up. And he said, obviously, it was a rough time because I had a lot of things spinning about in my head. Going to training, for instance, meant copying a few wisecracks from my teammates about following them even though the jibes were all men in good fun. But one thing I definitely didn't want to do was leave my mates. We all get on tremendously and we've enjoyed great success together. Of that tension, he said of his relationship with his father, I spoke to dad about what was happening many times and everything was sweet. It was just father-son stuff. He's always looked after me and guided me on the right path prior to all this, and I was happy to have his input yet again. So he was weighing that up against the bond with his teammates and the pact that they'd made to all go together. So he was... Getting a lot of that, you know, at training, getting ribbed about signing. and So are we saying that Don's in effect saying it's okay if you're at a Super League? Well, this is what Don said. I only asked him to delay signing until he heard both sides, but David made it clear from day one that he wanted to remain with his team no matter where he played, and he even went as far as having such a clause written in his contract with News Limited. So he was quite genuine about that, and I gave him my blessing. Well, wow. says a lot about Don Ferner, doesn't it? Yeah. And so he did eventually sign with Super League on April 10. So it, it was a week and a half of weighing everything up in his mind. But in the end, that idea of the team won out. It was too persuasive. And this is what a lot of the Canberra players uh, felt badly about when the word loyalty was used because they felt they were being loyal by staying together and yeah. sticking as a team. And that's what rubbed me out the wrong way as well is, you know, one side's loyal, the other side's Judas. It's, like, it's not quite that simple. Yeah. So Ricky Stewart, for instance, said, I'm starting to tire of all the talk of loyalty in the whole question of the Super League. In my own case, it was a question of deciding where the greater loyalty lay. I consider myself a loyal person. Had I remained loyal to the ARL, that would have meant being disloyal to my Canberra teammates. That I simply could not bring myself to do. 
What I love about that, those Raiders sides, they all seem to be good mates still to this day. I love that. Usually there's a falling out or two. Yeah. These guys just seem to really mm. love each other. And so with that, the Raiders are all signed up. This was a big problem for the ARL, given that not only were they such a high-profile club, but they had the core of that New South Wales side, you know, as well as several Queensland representatives. And so we mentioned in our opening monologue, Ricky Stewart's discussion with Phil Gould. It seems that after that conversation on the Saturday, an idea was already formulating within the ARL to try to get back Ricky Stewart. I think he was viewed as the most likely target because of his links with Bob Fulton and Phil Gould and the fact that everyone knew that playing for Australia meant a lot to him. Also, if you get Stewart, you kind of destabilise the Raiders yeah. a whole lot more Yeah, as per 1993. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, the, the proof was in the pudding that that was the, the linchpin. And so on the Monday, Ricky Stewart was in the Hunter Valley with his manager, John Fordham, uh, doing some wine promotions and got the call from Bob Fulton to come back down and speak to the ARL. And Stewart said, all right, I'll come and talk to you, but I don't want a bloody lecture. So in, in Stewart's account, I said I would go in, but it was only to pay them the respect of talking to them because of my involvement with them. And so with that, Stewart came down to Sydney with his manager, John Fordham, who I should should have mentioned, that was the other potential weak link with Stewart in the ARL's eyes. So John Fordham was close friends with Alan Jones and was essentially wasn't a rugby league manager. Ricky Stewart was his only rugby league client. And they remained super close to his day as yeah. well. And so it was Fordham who was actually initially contacted by Bob Fulton. As well as being a key piece, he was seen as the easiest to get potentially. So he came down to Sydney, had his meeting with Bob Fulton, etc., where it was strongly implied that the Australian captaincy would be given to him if he came back to the ARL, which um, when you consider they'd already offered it to Brad Fittler. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I reckon they would have just said when they um, got them both there, look, things change, boys, you know, like... <laughs> So Bob Fulton denies that such an offer was ever made. Stewart, for his part, says it wasn't stated explicitly, but it was heavily implied. And well, wouldn't it have been if they were trying to yeah. flip him yeah. over? Yeah. A couple of plain-speaking gentlemen, Bozo and Sticky. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the offer, and he had a couple of days to stew on it. So he went back to Canberra. Two days later on the Wednesday, John Quayle and other ARL reps went down to Canberra in a Learjet to formally give him an offer and give him 24 hours to make a decision, basically. The cost of his Learjets must have been racking up. Yeah. It's not a cheap proposition. No. So the the offer was a million dollars a year, reportedly, which was about double the Super League contract. Holy shit. And again, the Australian captaincy as the, the carrot. In 95? Yeah. Holy shit balls. Again, I'm getting that from one source, so... We don't need to read that as the, the definite offer, but it was certainly a, a very big offer and bigger than what he would have got at Super League. Was this Deep Throat style source? No, no. This is uh, the Paul Malone ALF book. So. Oh, right. <laughs> and so with that, I mean, that might have been enough. And Stuart spent that day camped at home because of a media throng that had gathered outside his house to, you know, see, to hope he'd emerge on his doorstep and, and give a impromptu press conference announcing his decision. He actually had to head to training by jumping the fence to his next-door neighbour's house and, and heading out his door. So a lot to consider, and he may well have gone back to the ARL except something that happened on the Thursday. So while he was weighing this all up, he got the call from Ken Cowley with the bombshell 
that knock the ARL out of the water that Super League had signed up the English and New Zealand rugby league boards. And suddenly, if you wanted to be, play for Australia, if you wanted to be the Australian captain, Super League was the place to be. Unless you wanted to play a ragtag bunch called the rest of the world. Exactly. <laughs> but thank God he took time to sleep on it. Yeah. But so that was about the end of it. And of course, we've got a full chapter coming up on the English and New Zealand rugby league board soon. Funny, we're always laughing at the rest of the world test, but I really enjoyed it at the time. It's one of those things that, because I, I remember it, hearing about it in the cricket as well. Yeah. And when you're a kid, it sounds so cool like, yeah. and it sounds legit. Yeah. It, it's only as you get older where you're like, well, no one's going to put in for that. <laughs> but the rest of the world, out of all the players, would have been cool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And so with that, the ARL missed out on Ricky Stewart, which led to a bit of disappointing pettiness from John Quayle. So talking about the decision to go after Ricky Stewart, he said, I still say that my personal regret was that the target should have been Laurie Daly. Laurie was more football-minded, more motivated by things other than money, but we were told that Laurie had signed up. It's like, well, Ricky Stewart was offered more money to go back to the ARL. Yeah. It was clear to everyone that the international game playing for Australia was a big part of his decision. Also, he turned in a lot of money to stay with his teammates, yeah. so it's got to be recognised. Yeah. And furthermore, they actually did go after Laurie Daly as well, with Laurie saying that the ARL had contacted contacted him to ask him to go up to Phillip Street to speak to them. And he said, I'll go up if you want, but my decision's made. And he never ended up making the trip. Are they the three biggest names, in your opinion? Alf, Sticky and Laurie? Yeah. Yeah, me too. Yeah, there's, you could argue Clyde is up there as well, but I think it's those three, for me, uh, they stand out. Just the injuries yeah. put him one pace behind, yeah. I think. But so on Langer, once they'd put the offer to Stewart, the Learjets' next stop was in Brisbane, and they actually went up to try to see what they could do about getting some Broncos. You know when they say in divorce, the only people that win are the lawyers? In the Super League World, the only people that won were the jet fuel <laughs> providers. <laughs> So Steve Renoff was one of those players, seven in all, met with James Packer, Bob Fulton, Ken Arthurson, and John Quayle. So the others were Kerrod and Kevin Walters, Willie Kahn, Wendell Saylor, Michael Hancock, and Glenn Lazarus, who all met to hear what the ARL might have to offer them. For his part, Kerrod Walters said that there was no way he was ever going to sign with the ARL. He just wanted to hear what they had to say. But that didn't sit well with Alf, who said, the most disappointing thing of the whole war was when most of the players had signed and then those players went and spoke to the ARL. I was shitty with them and didn't speak to them at training that afternoon. No one bent their arm to sign the Super League contract and they were just chasing more money with the ARL. They were trying to do the right thing by themselves. I can understand that, but I found it greedy they were doing it. <laughs> That's the worst part of the war, is it? <laughs> okay. Uh, but obviously they missed out with all those players as well. I really wonder how close they got with Glenn Lazarus. Yeah, that would have been a duel. Yeah. That would have stopped 99 happening. Mm. So why... Oh, that <laughs> <laughs> so we can see the pressure Canberra were under and all this stuff in the air beforehand. And in fact, Canberra, those three players, Stuart, Daly and Clyde, were the first players to go public and announce that they'd sign with Super League. So that happened uh, on the Sunday where everyone knew that players had been signed. You had the faces on the front of the, the Telegraph, etc. But no one was coming on record and they just wanted to get it out in the open and held a press conference. Remember it. And this might have something to do with how they subsequently 
became so front and centre as the public face of Super League. This was a shockwave, though. This was absolute ground zero shockwave yeah, at yeah. the time. And in their own way, each of those three players, Clyde, Daly and Stewart, became real public advocates for Super League. You know, Clyde saying, that's where my support for Super League stems from, the fact that over the years the ARL haven't looked after people, even its international representatives. Sure, they put on a function once a year for the old kangaroos, but that's it. Under Super League, players will at least be looked after with superannuation deals. Ricky Stewart coming out and saying, we get to discuss rule changes, what shape of football we should use, what conditions we're prepared to play in, what standard of facilities are acceptable. A comparison, if you like, is how Bruce Springsteen approaches his concerts. If he's not happy with how everything's set up, there's no show. (laughs) Is that a direct comparison? (laughs) I thought it was a stretch myself. (laughs) But rightly or wrongly, statements like these are made and get taken hold of by the press, by the public, and, you know, builds this, you know, angry, vitriolic situation. You get the kind of, they're spoiled, all the rest of it. Just that comment there, though, I think he was very excited about getting a a rounder shaped ball for more distance on the top. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) The fact he threw that in. Yeah. So he was, he was with you. He was looking at the Gilberts. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Definitely get more distance on your torpedo. And it was in this period in 1995 that Stuart really took up the habit of open letter writing, which is uh, <laughs> one of our favourite pastimes. <laughs> so it's a very rugby league skill. So just a couple of examples. In the wake of Super League players being left out of city country, which of course led to the origin and later test snubs as well, country rugby league boss David Barn, who actually came out and said that Ricky Stewart wouldn't have even been picked for country if available. <laughs> which ludicrous comment, but one that Sticky maybe could have let go, but he decided an open letter had to be penned <laughs> about this. Uh, I'll just read this. So David Barnhill reckons I wouldn't have been picked for country for that no-value annual representative match against City on, at Wollongong on Friday night. Jeez. If the incredible outburst I read yesterday was accurate, it would appear my failure to play in the past three country City matches through genuine injury has somehow touched a nerve with Barnhill. What exactly were you trying to say, Mr. Barnhill? And then goes on to list his injury history over those previous three years, saying he missed that Canberra game as well and that game he was advised not to play and and all the rest of it, which is all very true. It it was just maybe just let it go. How petty is that? But, I mean, this is him cutting his teeth for the ultimate open letter thing, the the Phil Gould feud years later. Yeah, yeah. The most vitriolic thing I've ever seen in a newspaper. <laughs> Are you talking about the Gould one? Because that yeah, was, yeah, yeah. The Herald V Telegraph yeah, yeah, games, yeah. games best thinker <laughs> column. Most vitriolic feud in the history of newspapers. But funnily enough, at the end of this open letter, he wrote this. The following year, I did play for my club the same weekend I opted out of city country, but only because I was told if I didn't play against St George, I wouldn't be considered for the first origin match. On that occasion, a high-profile New South Wales official told me a club match was a far better gauge of form and fitness than a non-event. What's particularly amusing to me and many other Super League players is that this same official, who's been in the front line of the ARL's rearguard campaign in recent weeks, is now publicly pushing the importance of the city-country match. Petty, petty, petty. I was still hanging on to the fact that it was a good idea back then. It, yeah. it was Mickey Mouse from the day yeah. done. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think we've discussed it before, but the fact that we've known it was Mickey Mouse for 30 years and allowed it to just sputter along. For... You can't have your best players not respecting it. Yeah. My God. Earlier in the year, he had an open letter to Nick Politis where he refuted all the claims Politis had made about 
arrangements with the Roosters. So he he was really getting fired up in 1995. I think that could go into your equation book. A number of open letters equals aggression times something. Yeah. <laughs> but it kind of makes sense with Stuart. He always had that cantankerous yeah. kind of personality anyway. Yeah. The really surprising one was Daly, how like angry and, and the statements he was making in the press throughout the year. But this is the thing about Daly. Like we've met him, loveliest bloke ever, mm. and exactly how you'd think he was going to be. Yeah. But he's also like when he's being stood over or something like that, he's, he's going to stand up for himself. He's that sort of guy. Yeah. Push him to the limit and he's going to arc up. Yeah. But you could already see pre-Super League him showing signs of disgruntlement. So at one point when there was talk of who was going to be Australian captain in the wake of Mel Meninga's retirement and – there was a suggestion that Ken Arthurson had endorsed Ricky Stewart for the job. Daly was in the press saying that he'd leave Canberra go to another club if it gave him a better chance. Just like kind of petulant things like that being said. During the war, coming out and making some regretful comments, the, the most notable one is the one he made in 1996 where he said that he and his fellow players had been treated like dogs by the ARL. <laughs> Not as bad as Mal. That's the gold standard no. of regrettable comments. <laughs> <laughs> so in Laurie's words, the headline intimated I'd claim the players had generally been treated poorly under the ARL administration, but that's not what I was referring to. The players' representatives had been kept waiting for hours by the ARL, and when they went public with a statement about our discussions, I made the comment that we've been treated like a dog today, we've been kicked in the guts. <laughs> it's like... The most minor personal slight can turn into the biggest thing. Yeah. You've got to catch him early, <laughs> the personal slights. And that gave Ken Arthurson the biggest free kick of all time, saying how I've never heard a more unfair statement in my life, etc. But it just goes to show that Daly wasn't really suited for that role. Yeah, yeah. So there was an earlier um, moment in 1995 when asked about signing with Super League and he said... It was a really good offer to refuse. <laughs> but you know what that reminds me of? It reminds me of that scene in Casino, the movie where they're trying to kick Rothstein out of Vegas, the, the cowboy commissioners, and then it's on the paper. It says, I'm the boss. And the guy goes, did he really say that? I guess, of course he really said it. It's right here. <laughs> like, they treated us like dogs. But so we've got a lot more on the, the toxic nature of press coverage of Super League as we go along with the series. But it was funny seeing players like Laurie Daly, as you said, the nicest bloke in the world, at the center of that. Mm. And in some ways, I think it took a person like Laurie Daly for fans to think, well, because I remember at the time, like I, I worshipped Laurie Daly. Yeah. And even though I was on the ARL side of things, seeing him on the other other side and, and so so out in force in favor of it, it made me question things a bit. You know, I was like... Yeah. Oh, like, so he was the, the clean skin that you could trust in the matter. So like the Broncos were a different thing because in New South Wales, they were already so hated. Yeah. But when you had the hometown hero. But a side point to that, like where is that hatred without Wally Lewis? Yeah. Like, I just think of the way he whipped up New South Wales all throughout the 80s. Like that rivalry would have always been there and been intense. But... <laughs> I think we can single-handedly credit Wally with like how bad it got. I remember watching the Origin at home as like an eight or nine-year-old or something, and them singing Wally's a wanker, and me going, "Good, 
He's a winner. <laughs> and just the other thing I thought of with Wally, imagine if Super League came around a few years earlier <laughs> and it was Wally Lewis leading the charge. Like, I couldn't imagine Super League being any more toxic uh, unless Twitter was around for Super League. <laughs> but I think Wally being like the yeah, face yeah. of it would have trumped all of it. Easy. But what Super League did was do what the salary cap scandal could not, which was turn Canberra into everyone's second favorite team into villains. And it got really ugly with a game against Ace in 1995, players getting spat on by the crowds. That's just insane. It's disgusting. And and that's where we leave this chapter with players like Laurie Daly in the unlikely role as antagonists and public enemies to New South Wales fans. That's what really annoyed me though. Just like this whole narrative, like Daly and uh, Clyde and Stewart were greedy. But Paul Harrigan was totally not greedy. Yeah. And and as we can see, Stuart was given so many hundreds of thousands of reasons to not be greedy with the ARL yeah. and turned his back on it. So we're getting to the end of our April Fool's Day sequence. We've still got uh, a few more chapters in relation to that. But this Canberra situation was the one that really lit the fuse and sent everything into overdrive. So with that, we end this chapter. I'm going to give my book plug as always. And this one, I'm going to go with Laurie Daly, Always a Winner, which love you, Loz. No bigger fans than the two of us in that room. Not a great book. <laughs> great title, though. Great title. Sums him up. What, what were your thoughts of, of this book? In terms of literary fence sitting, it's probably like the gold standard. <laughs> it was like, how many words can you use to say absolutely nothing? <laughs> and I think it's worth the price of entry for the moment where when talking about the Raiders players being at a Nashes game during the 1997 World Club Challenge, attending the game in fancy dress, being spotted by a couple of eagle-eyed reporters. <laughs> uh, so that is the end of this episode. I just wanted uh, a few notes before we go. Firstly is to tell you about the Tom Brock Conference on the 11th of November. This, uh, as you heard us talking about last week, will be taking place at Ride Eastwood Leagues Club from 9am. I'm so pumped for this event. 12 speakers covering all aspects of rugby league history. Uh, I'll just read you the list so you can see what you're in for if you turn up. So we've got John Brock uh, talking about the story of Albert Burtis, who was a foundation player in 1908. Andy Carr, friend of the show, who will be talking about the digitization of rugby league news. We've got Drew Cottle talking about the history of Craig Bellamy's Melbourne Storm. Joe Gorman covering themes in his book, Heartland, How Rugby League Explains Queensland. Kath Haynes talking about the New South Wales Ladies Rugby Football League in 1921. Guy Hansen talking about Canberra's 1989 Premiership. Spencer Casimir talking about the role of Golden Point in Rugby League. Melissa McMahon talking about the outlawing of Rugby League in Vichy, France. Tom Mather talking about the other Dave Brown. Heidi Norman talking about Aboriginal participation in Rugby League. Patrick Skenny talking about Olsen Filipana, pioneer of the Pacifica Revolution. How cool is that? And Terry Williams talking about a player, Robert Nicholson, with the title Almost a Kangaroo. So Salivating at that. Yeah, really varied slate. Some uh, incredible rugby league content right there. I hope uh, some of you can join us there on the 11th of November. You can RSVP to kathyhaines65 at gmail.com. That's Kathy with a K. Uh, or just email me at Digest at gmail.com. And the last thing is just to announce that we're going to try to shake things up a bit to allow me to get all the research in place. We're going to be switching to a three episodes a month format. So we'll have 
three chapters followed by one week research a break, a buy, uh, and go forward with that format. And we're going to um, get our act together and get it out every Thursday a.m. from yep. now on. So we'll be switching to a Thursday release. And I, th- I think it's a way to get it out more regularly if we can commit to that three weeks on, one week off. I know everyone listening understands the amount of work that has gone into this project. Uh, and this, I think, is the best way to get it out more regularly. Good stuff, mate. So I hope you've enjoyed the show. Uh, let us know what you think on Facebook, Twitter, the Rugby League Digest at gmail.com. And with that, we'll speak to you next week. Toodaloo.